David's story is one of the heroism of free will. He is one of the greatest figures in the Bible, but he has a bit of Esau inside him and a bit of Goliath inside him. But the fact that David did not become Goliath is the very testament to David's greatness. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 89, Caravaggio's David. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Perhaps no figure in the Hebrew Bible has inspired more interesting art than David. We have pondered Michelangelo's mistake. We have seen Rembrandt's description of David and Saul. And today, we consider Caravaggio's depiction of David holding aloft the head of Goliath. Let us set the scene. It is 1610 and Caravaggio has for four years been a fugitive after killing someone in a duel in Rome. The authorities of the papal states declare abande capitale, which means that if you bring Caravaggio's head, you will receive a reward. I'm drawing here in this description on Simon Shama's book, The Power of Art, and Shama puts it this way, quote, there's a price on his head, alive or dead, so he does what he's always done, what he does best. He tries to paint his way out of trouble, end quote. And Shama adds, quote, perhaps by offering his head in a painting, he can save himself in real life, end quote. What this means is that Caravaggio has been offered by Cardinal Borghese that he will entreat the Pope to pardon Caravaggio. As a reward or as an act of penance, Caravaggio paints this picture of David holding up the head of Goliath. But Caravaggio does more than that. In the most unusual self-portrait in the history of art, Caravaggio has used his face for the severed head of the dead Goliath. And there is more here, ladies and gentlemen, for there are those who suggest, based on other paintings, that what we have here is actually a double self-portrait. David is what Caravaggio looked like when he was a boy, and Goliath is what he looks like at the time the painting was created. And if this is the case, the painting gives us a fascinating lens with which to look at the biblical figure of David himself. Having described the interactions of David and Saul, we now focus on the former when he is alone. In chapter 25, David and his band of men interact with a husband and wife by the name of Naval and Avigail. Their names do not match, as Avigail is an apparent beautiful reference to the joy connected with one's father, whereas Naval means repugnant or disgusting. And the Bible makes clear that fittingly, us, this husband and wife, are not moral matches. Verse 3. Now the name of the man was Naval, and the name of his wife Avigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and fair of form, but the man was hard-hearted and evil in his doings. David sends messengers to Naval during the sheep-shearing season, asking for sustenance. And Naval's answer, to put it mildly, was no. Verse 10. And Naval answered David's servants and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and the fresh meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to the men from I know not where? David, enraged, decides to destroy Neville's household. And here, one detail mentioned is easily overlooked, but is actually absolutely essential. Verse 13, And David said to his men, Let every man gird his sword. And they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And there went up after David about four hundred men. The Bible only mentions details it deems essential. And as Rabbi Abnon Bazak points out, we have one other story in the Hebrew Bible about a man who travels with a band of 400 men. That, of course, is Esau in Genesis, who murderously vows vengeance against Jacob and ultimately marches toward his brother with exactly 400 men. We have seen the story of Esau, the hunter, how his urges led him to spurn the birthright, how his rage drove him to desire to murder Jacob, 
how Rebecca recognized that Esau's own choices made him unworthy of being chosen for covenantal continuity. Why in the world would the Bible seek to link David to Esau if that is what is occurring here? And the parallel, as Rabbi Bazak further argues, is even stronger. In Genesis, Jacob puts together a series of gifts for Esau and then eventually bows down before his brother and delivers an eloquent speech so that reconciliation occurs. Here, the exact same scenario unfolds with Avigail, the righteous wife of Naval, sending gifts to David. And she rides to David without telling her husband, delivering one of the most eloquent addresses in the Bible, from which I cite selections, verse 23, 24, 25, 29, and 30. And when Avigail saw David, she hastened and descended from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be. And let thy handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thy ears and hear the words of thy handmaid. Let not, my Lord, I pray thee, take heed of this worthless fellow Naval. For as his name is, so is he. Naval is his name, and folly is with him. But I, thy handmaid, did not see the young men of my Lord whom thou didst send. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as thy soul lives, seeing the Lord has prevented thee from coming to shed blood, and from avenging thyself with thy own hand, now let thy enemies, and they that seek evil to my Lord, buy as Naval. And it shall come to pass, when the Lord shall have done to my Lord, according to all the good he has spoken concerning thee, and shall have appointed thee ruler of Israel, that this shall not be a cause of stumbling to thee, nor offense of heart to my Lord, that thou hast shed blood causelessly, or that my Lord has avenged himself. And thee, Lord, shall deal well with my Lord, and thou shalt remember thy handmaid. Avigail, in other words, says to David, God has given you the ability to be a great warrior, but this is meant to be wielded against the enemies of Israel, not to kill members of your own people. Amazingly, in the parallel to Genesis, Avigail, as Rabbi Zach points out, is playing here the reconciling role of Jacob, whereas David parallels Esau. And David, recognizing that this incredible woman has saved him from sin, says to her, verse 32, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent thee this day to meet me, and blessed be thy discretion, and blessed be thou who hast kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with my own hands. David is saying, that aside from the battles that he waged against his enemies, there was a battle within himself, and Abigail has helped him overcome his darker impulses. David is not Esau, but he has, perhaps, some of the same urges as Esau within him. And it is with this in mind that we may return to Caravaggio's painting of David holding Goliath's head and Goliath's sword. The words on the sword are, Humility conquers pride. And, as we have mentioned, it may well be that Caravaggio painted his younger self as David and his older face as Goliath. If so, the painting is meant to depict a struggle within. The point, as Shama put it, is that there is, quote, a battle that's been fought in Caravaggio's head between the two sides of the painter portrayed here. There's the devout, courageous David Caravaggio, and then there's the criminal sinner Goliath Caravaggio. I know who I've been, says the head, unable to look us in the eyes. I know what I've done. Just the dark truth from inside Caravaggio's head flooded with tragic self-knowledge, end quote. Meaning the artist gives us Caravaggio, perhaps looking at Caravaggio. Caravaggio as he once was and Caravaggio as he became. But I would also suggest that perhaps built into the painting, there is a plea for penitence. Perhaps, he is saying, the good Caravaggio still lies within. And that perhaps that aspect of the artist's interior could make itself manifest. That is why the painting is a request for the allowing of penitence. 
As a human being, Caravaggio is saying, he has both David and Goliath within him. And rightly understood, one can speak of having David and Goliath within the actual righteous biblical figure that we are discussing, King David. Maimonides famously gives us terms for two moral paradigms. There is the Hasid HaMeuleh, the naturally good person, and the Moshel Berucho, the one who achieves goodness by overcoming some of his or her worse inclinations. David is the latter. Indeed, the drama of David throughout his life is that his career is not marked by perfection. We will see triumphs, but also struggles, failings, and ultimately penitence. David's story is one of the heroism of free will. He is one of the greatest figures in the Bible, but he has a bit of Esau inside him and a bit of Goliath inside him. When David first held up Goliath's head, he saw perhaps a bit of the own violence that was in his spirit. But the fact that David did not become Goliath is the very testament to David's greatness. And when we ponder this, we realize that this is not the first time that David is compared to Esau. When Samuel first travels to Bethlehem to anoint a new monarch, God, as we've discussed, warns the prophet not to take note of the superficial. Yet we cannot help but notice that even on a literary level, two features of David's appearance are emphasized by Scripture. First, as we mentioned Friday, David is described as Yephaenaim, endowed with fine eyes. But we are also told, even before that, that David is Admoni, which means reddish or ruddy, a description that has been applied earlier to one other individual in the Hebrew Bible, Esau. And this is meant, perhaps, to hint to us that at least superficially there is more to the warrior David than meets the eye. Or, if you will, there is more to the warrior David than his pair of fine eyes. David has the ability to wreak great violence. The question is, to what cause? Judaism does not believe in determinism. And, as we have discussed in earlier talks, Judaism emphasizes free will. The drama of David is not in the fact that he's always naturally good. He has to overcome urges within himself, and he will not always succeed. Though in those cases, we will see how repentance can splendidly follow. But David's struggles highlight how the Bible rejects determinism, emphasizes freedom. And this can also be found, perhaps, in another feature of David's biography. David, through Ruth, was the descendant of Moab, one of the oldest enemies of the people of Israel. He is a descendant, in other words, of the people whose women lured the children of Israel to licentious idolatry, a descendant of the people whose king Balak sought with Bilam to destroy the children of Israel. The Bible thus goes out of its way to emphasize, literarily and biographically, connections between David and Esau, but also connections between David and the Moabite enemies of Israel. And here, too, the point is deliberate. Descent and appearance are not determiners of moral choices. Thus, a painting of David looking at Goliath as if he were seeing himself or his potential self tells us about what was going on within David himself. Another way of putting it is that even greater, perhaps, than David's physical victory over Goliath at the beginning of his career was his spiritual victory over the Goliath within him at other moments in his life. At times, the darker urges may have appeared insurmountable. They may have seemed like a veritable Goliath, and yet, just as David defeated Goliath in real life, so does Judaism insist that we are each gifted not necessarily natural goodness, but the ability to overcome our darker impulses and embrace goodness. David's story is meant to teach us that whatever darkness we bear can be overcome. Yes, David looks a little like Esau. Yes, he descends from Moab. But Judaism embraces free will 
and believes in the power of the human spirit to overcome any darkness within. We see this in David. And of course, we see it in his ancestor, Ruth. Ruth's remarkable life is a reversal of the Moabite sins in the Bible. We read how the women of Moab finally succeeded in weakening Israel through the lure of licentious idolatry, whereas in the story of Ruth, we read about how one Moabite woman embraces Israel and says, Amechami, your people are my people. We see how the women of Moab lure the Israelites to paganism, whereas in the story of Ruth, one Moabite woman in an astonishing act of love and loyalty rejects idolatry. She says, your God is my God. It is the tale of Ruth the Moabite, like that of David, her descendant, that embodies our ability to choose the good and to overpower any darkness in our spirit. In the end, the wicked Naval dies, seemingly of shock when he discovers how close he came to being killed by David. Avigail marries David and is renowned as the wise woman who guided David toward the proper path. And the story teaches us that Caravaggio was, at least in part, correct. For David to look at Goliath was for David to see a bit of himself, a tiny part of him, the dark force within him that in theory could win. But in the end, David's victory over Goliath was not only a battle waged once in the Elah Valley. It was a battle waged within David's heart again and again, one in which the Goliath in David may have won temporary battles, but never the war. In David's life, it was ultimately David the anointed of God that emerged the victor. And that is what makes the story not only one of the most interesting, but also one of the most inspiring in Hebrew scripture. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.